and he said, if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before the angels. If you acknowledge me, then I'll acknowledge you. And the question that I'm putting before us, especially as we're leading up to our congregational gathering there in in, uh, May, uh, which is, I'm asking you, are you confessing Christ before men? Are you acknowledging him? Can people see Christ in you? So the text, uh, we're looking at the example of the early church, uh, the post-Pentecost church. Uh, so if you look there, uh, we're in chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at a few verses, and I wanted you to keep those handy. Chapter 4, verse 2, also chapter 4, verse 13. And then I'll take you back to Pentecost there in Acts chapter 2 in a moment. In Acts chapter 4, we've, we've finally gotten through some of the exciting events, and the text says, uh, let us reverently attend to it, Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's the passage in verse 2. A little bit later in verse 13, there's some reflection on it. And the scripture tells us in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, I just want to back you up a few more verses to uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Uh, when you look at Acts chapter 2, this is during, one of the, this, this is during Pentecost, when the, when the Spirit of God came down in power. And this is a part of the sermon that Peter preached. For the promises to you and to your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself... And with many other words, let me repeat verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them, saying that you should save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, they were baptized and they were added to to that. uh, They were added and that day about 3000 souls. And then the next verse in verse 42 tells us what happened next. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, as these familiar texts from uh, Luke's writing of the history of Acts, I pray from these familiar texts that you will speak to us today, that you will inspire us, that you will motivate us, that you will comfort us, that you will inform us, and that you'll speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've kept up, but uh, Kit just mentioned a few moments ago about the struggles that people have had around the world. The earth literally was shaking. When you watch the videos, it almost seems like a movie. People's lives turned upside down. Folks died. They're trying to pull people out of wreckage. Your life is not guaranteed. It is here for a moment and then can vanish away. So I want to encourage you to come into the present tense and treasure these moments. Treasure what it means to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Christ. Now I wanted to start off today by asking you this question. Do you know many Christians today? It's interesting. Some of you look like you're nodding yes and some of you are looking like, well, I don't know that many. Some of you are afraid that if you say yes, then you're, you're going to feel like you're sheltered from society. And if you say no, that you don't know many Christians, you know, or the other way around, it's like you don't know what the right answer is. 
Well, I've been pondering this. Christianity today is in a paradoxical scenario. Paradox means you can put one against the other and they don't make sense. It, it kind of is confusing. On the one hand, Christianity is under attack. And on the other hand, people are claiming to be Christians. Let me just give you an illustration. I, I should say the logic goes like this. It's that, that people that are hostile towards Christianity are blaming Christians for different things over the last uh, decades, the last centuries. They're accusing Christians of being on the wrong side of wars, that, they're, uh, that they want to fight too much. They're accusing Christians of not really being caring people because poverty is so bad. They even look around and say most Christians around here are so rich and they don't even have a mindset for the poor. And so they accuse Christians of being greedy and of being uncaring. It's really interesting I don't know if you've fallen into that trap, but they might even accuse Christians. Uh, and when it comes to the slavery issue, they might accuse Christians for being bi- uh, bigoted because they're not, in the, and they're not buying into all the tolerance. It's interesting how Christianity is being put on trial in a lot of people's minds and being found guilty. Now, the other thing that's of interest is that everybody's claiming to be a Christian. I've heard with my own ears the five candidates that are running for president. I've heard them say and identify themselves to self-identify as Christians, including our current president. I've heard with my own ears when he was in Saddleback Church eight years ago and he was running and he talked about his Christianity. Now, when I was thinking about it, I wanted to make a point. All of these people claim to be Christians Senator Clinton, or Senator Sanders, let me walk him through. He's like a practical socialist, claims to be a Christian. Senator, or Secretary Clinton is like a progressive elitist, and she wants to build a better society, build bridges to a better society. Senator Cruz, he's a principled constitutionalist. He's seeking to restore limited government. We have uh, Governor Kasich, a positive-faced conservative, seeking to balance the budget and to not be judgmental. And we also have businessman Trump, who is a pragmatic entrepreneur, seeking to build walls and to make great deals. All of these people claim to be Christians. Are they? How judgmental you are if you answer that question. I'd have to join with Governor Kasich, you know. Don't be judgmental. We all need to have a positive face. But the the issue that I'm raising by mentioning these characters is that can they be Christians? Can all of them be Christians when they have such diverse opinions, when they have such diverse uh, solutions? Then I'm going to turn around on you. Do you claim to be a Christian? And if you do claim to be a Christian, what views do you espouse? What title might I mention about you? You see, the issue today is that Christianity is not so clear anymore. The title Christianity, which was first labeled upon Christians, was from Acts chapter 11. And it was not a positive term. It was given to them, I believe, by those who are not a part of the Christian group. And when they looked in Acts chapter 11, they saw that this particular uh, group of people, the followers of the way, they were different. 
They turned the other cheek. They went the extra mile. They gave the coat off their back. They were known by their love. And it was almost like sickening love. They were first called Christians in Antioch. The term Christian seems to have, shall we say, it's evolved to be pretty much now anything that's non, anything that's non, um, it, it embraces everything. Let's put it this way. If you're not one of those other religions, then you're Christian. It's like the all embracing category now. And so it's not just, as the scripture says, it's not just because we are known for our love but it's because Christians are known because they're not the other religions. Now, I wanted to raise the issue today. The title of the message has to do with discipleship. And that's why I wanted to turn the tables and say, we mentioned those people running for office. We mentioned the people, the individual living in the White House. And we've mentioned the people that are in this room today. Are we disciples of Jesus Christ? Is there a difference? Well, discipleship is something that is very, very significant. And I believe as we walk through the text today, as I take you through the example of the historical church, you're going to be able to see some things that maybe you hadn't seen before. There are two kind of words that really capture this. You'll find the one in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19 and 20, where it says that you are to go into all the world and make Disciples. Okay, so you see the word disciple. And now there's another word in Acts chapter 1, uh, which also is used and uh, sometimes uh, interchangeably. But it is, and you shall be my witnesses. Okay, my witnesses. So the difference between those, mathetes and martyrion, those two words try to capture some of the people who are following Christ. They were either disciples or they were witnesses does that describe the people that i gave the list that are running for office are they followers of jesus this again i'm putting you into the bad scenario of making a judgment but i want you to be able to pull the beam out of your own eye before you start applying pulling the splinter out of theirs Uh, we need to be able to answer the question are we followers of jesus are we disciples are we witnesses what i want to be able to go through and explain to you to be able to help you answer that question is i want you to, i want to show you how the disciples were discipled and then secondly i want to show how the apostles did their apostling if there's such a word as that but the first point how did the disciples get discipled uh, the way you're going to find this is by looking at scripture none of us are old enough to have been back in those days when God discipled these individuals. I don't even know if you could list all of them. How many original disciples were there? Some of you are murmuring through this. This might be a slow sermon after all. Uh, You know, there was 12 disciples. But I want to be able to highlight how Jesus prepared and how he discipled those disciples. Uh, There are five particular things that you'll find that he did. He gathered them, he taught them, he prepared them, he commanded them, and he delegated authority to them. So there's five things, and I want to just highlight that as we walk through. How do I know this? Because the Word of God tells us in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and in John, when we find the biographies of Jesus being presented, we find that he discipled these guys. And that's why these guys were called disciples. It's pretty easy. One plus one equals two. That's how it happened. Somebody that's a discipler 
discipled these individuals and they became disciples. That's a disciple. That's what it means. Now, first, Jesus gathered them. If you go to John 15, uh, right before the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, Jesus is looking at these disciples and he tells them, you didn't choose me, I chose you and I ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. The interesting thing about discipling is that there is a gathering of individuals. He calls them. And if you open up each of the Gospels, you're going to find at the beginning that there's a few individuals that he names by name. He says, Peter, come on. He says, John, come on. He says to Andrew, come on. Has he called you? You see, this is the whole point about you have to be chosen. God has to elect you and bring you and draw you to himself. If I go to John chapter 10, where the great shepherd, which is identified as Jesus, he calls his sheep and his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. They know him and they follow him. That is the first part of being a disciple, that you hear from Jesus. Secondly, he teaches them, both by his example and by education. It's interesting as you go through the particular parables, and even also through the stories of the miracles, uh, different gospel writers focus on different things. Matthew focuses on the words of, of Jesus, and whereas John focuses on the deeds of Jesus. But in both cases, they're looking at this guy who sinned every other day, right? They were following a guy who never did anything wrong. By the way, we are too. We're following Jesus. Now, they got to see him. They got to watch how he reacted. They got to watch when they, when Acts, or excuse me, when, when, uh, when April 15th came along in, the, in their culture and they had to pay taxes. How did Jesus handle that? You know, you know how he handled it. You can see how he taught. You can see his attitude through it. You know, it doesn't tell us how he went through the toll booth or how he drove on the expressway if he was on 95. It doesn't tell us all those kind of things. But it shows us that Jesus' example was one where he was with grace. His speech was seasoned with salt. He was always there to minister to people in need. And he took notice of some of the smallest things, even of the children when he said, let the children come unto me. Don't push them away, for of such is the kingdom of God. Now, when you look at the example that Jesus said, that was one of the way these disciples learned to be a disciple. They watched the master and they followed his example. But Jesus also taught many different things. And if you looked at a few of the passages, as I would uh, in Luke chapter 14, he says a disciple cannot be above his master in, in Matthew 10. But in Luke 14, he says a disciple must be able to lay aside everything must be able to say there's nothing more important. Come after me. Deny yourself. Then you can be my disciple. You see, Jesus taught them. And that's a big part of discipleship is teaching. And I want you to take notice of that. Uh, Also, the third thing he did was he prepared them. It was in the teaching, but also in demonstrating before them, he prepared them to understand authority. He prepared them to understand their roles. He prepared them to understand sacrifice. Because he was, he was, he was reminding them that they're going to have to go into the world. And the world might not receive them very well. And he modeled it before them because he says in the Great Commission, all authority is given to me. I'm going to delegate it to you. So that's why I was saying he taught them, he prepared them, and he delegated to them. What did he delegate to them? 
the Great Commission. He said, I want you, my disciples, to go into all the world and make more disciples. So you see, this is the whole picture, the paradigm of how the disciples were being discipled. He did all of those things, and then in Acts 1, he ascends to heaven. And he leaves them there. He gives them the opportunity to work out this great, great mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So now our text comes into play in Acts chapter 4. How did the next stage happen? And I wanted to focus on the apostles for the moment. The difference between a disciple and apostle is it's significant. That's why I don't believe we have any more apostles today. But there are a lot of disciples. The difference is that an apostle was someone who met the resurrected Christ. Jesus, after dying on the cross, paying for our sins, was buried and on on the third day rose from the dead. And after that, he came and visited with different people. You can read about all the 500 plus people in 1 Corinthians 15. But the key thing is that he came and and informed those key men that were going to be apostles. And of course, Judas was not one of the apostles. He never did get to see the resurrected Christ. You remember why? Why? Because he never really saw the true living Christ. Judas had seen Jesus, walked with Jesus, but he never saw him as the son of God. And when he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, he ended up realizing his life was a mess. It was under satanic oppression. He ended up going out to the field. And I remember when we stood there in Jerusalem in January, you could see the field that was dedicated as the field of blood. He died and never got to see the resurrected Christ. His replacement in Acts chapter 1 mentions Matthias, but the real replacement was in Acts chapter 9 where where the resurrected Jesus shows up and visits this guy named Saul and he changes Saul's life, turning him into an apostle. An apostle is is a word that means sent one. It's very similar to like an angel, like an angelos, which means to send out. The apostles were sent out as well. Now, how did the apostles send out? How did they go forth with this power from God? Well, if you're going to look at the text, I want to be able to show you four things they did uh, and, and their actions communicated it. The first action is they exhorted. The second action, they taught. The third, they spent time. And fourth, they served. Pastor, doesn't that sound a little bit the same? You know, I want you to have a V8 moment and say, of course it does. What do you think disciples do? They disciple. What do you think the apostles are going to do having been discipled by Christ and having met the resurrected Savior? They're going to go out and make more disciples. So the apostles go and they do these things. And in Acts chapter 4, we're going to see. First, they exhorted and they preached because the exhortation has to do with the speaking gifts. They got up and they spoke. They revealed things. In Acts 2, as I read portion of the sermon, you can hear how Peter stood up and he proclaimed things. And as I repeated a couple times, he had many words. The sermon that was recorded in Acts Acts chapter 2 was probably a lot longer. As As Peter got up and he just articulated these things. Secondly, they all taught. All the apostles were involved in teaching. If you look at, if you go to chapter 4, verse 2, the people were greatly annoyed. The Sadducees from verse 1, the Sadducees and the captain of the temple were greatly annoyed with these guys because they were teaching the people. They were involved in teaching. 
Now, as I stop there for a moment, I wanted to ask you, is teaching today cool or not cool? Be careful how you answer. I'm using modern vernacular, so you might be able to have some wiggle room. But if it's cool, what would you expect people that are, that are disciples of Christ to do? They would get more of it. If teaching was awesome and it was like food, if it was better than the bread that we were mentioning with the kids, then you would be hungry for it and you would go search it out. If you're not hungry for it, then you must think that teaching is not cool. And that's what's going to happen in the latter days that Peter tells us. In the latter days, people will only heap to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears, not tell them the truth. You see, the problem today is that I don't know if teaching is valued by us anymore. When we have opportunities to be to, to, for you to learn, do you take advantage of those? Or it might be kind of cool with, post, uh, with, with the technology that's out there, you might go for better teachers. Find the right internet connection and you'll be able to uh, type in the, the address and you'll find this great teacher and this one and this one and this one. I hope that you're finding godly ones if you're searching there. Now, the point that I want to make is that they were exhorting in their preaching. They were teaching uh, over and over with authority and with boldness because that's what characterized their teaching. They didn't act like wimps. When they communicated this stuff, it was powerful. It was even more potent than even some of the professional teachers. Thirdly, they spent time with the people. How do I know this? If you go to Acts chapter 2, I already read it for you, but in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship. They hung out with these people. They actually wanted to spend time with the apostles. The people around there, the ones that were being discipled, actually wanted to hang out and learn more. They wanted to be able to follow the followers of Christ. It's pretty fascinating how they spend time in fellowship. And when I make that application to you... Where do you spend your free time? Do you have any free time? Do you enjoy the company of saints? Or do you prefer not to be around them lest they be too judgmental or they make you feel too uncomfortable? It's an interesting kind of a dynamic and parallel. But third, or fourthly, they served. How do I know this? Because in Acts chapter 6, the apostles were out there doing the things with the people and they worked hard at it. And the Bible says that there started to be complaints and murmurs. Is that uncommon? All the way in Acts chapter 2. You know what they were complaining about? It was that there, there was too many needs for the pastors and or for the elders, uh, in that particular case, the apostles, to be able to get to them. And so in Acts chapter 6, they said, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, they said, let's pick some more people who can do it. And that's where we got the bicameral office, where we have elders and we have deacons. They appointed godly spiritual men who would come and take care of the tables, take care of the widows, take care of the orphan, take care of the physical things. So that the apostles could devote themselves to two things. To the prayer and to the teaching and preaching of the word of God, to the word. So what you find is the church is expanding and there's even an expanding base of service, but the leaders were serving. Wow. They were setting a good example for others to follow. And that's what Paul ends up saying, be a follower of me as I follow Christ. 
Now, I told you that those were the actions of them, but I wanted to, to, to dive in just for a few moments of what was the apostles' doctrine. Because when you look at the text, uh, it says in Acts 4.2, they were teaching the people, they were, even though they were uneducated men, verse 13, they had been with Jesus, and their teaching astonished people. And it says in, in, uh, they, were, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in, in verse, chapter 2, verse 42. So I'm being repetitive to drive this point home. What were they teaching? What were they preaching? I, I want to give you four, four summary categories. First thing, they, they taught Christologically. Don't you love the big word? What's the root of it? Christ. They talked about Jesus. It was one of the first foremost things that was in their minds. Uh, when, when Peter stood up to preach in Acts 2, one of the most powerful words, he says, This Jesus whom you crucified. They, the, the focus always goes back to looking at Christ. If you, if you see that in Paul's writings in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, I know nothing about you except Christ and him crucified. And the preaching of his cross is the power of God to salvation. And then in, in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God. So you see, it's Christological. Now, secondly, there was hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. That's a big fancy word that we get in seminary as well. It's teaching the process of interpretation. Even from the very first sermon that the apostle got up to preach in Acts 2, the Pentecost sermon... He's already telling them about the prophet Joel in his sermon. Why would he reference Joel? Why would a preacher go back to the Old Testament? Because it's the word of God. You know, even when we held up that piece of bread, Jesus was referencing back to Moses. You see, the hermeneutics is being able to connect the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's to connect the 40 authors of Scripture and show how they're weaved together. It may look like a mess if you're looking at that side, but when you turn it over, you see the tapestry, how the Holy Spirit brought all these things together. And hermeneutics is trying to be able to show you how to understand the prophet Joel and how to understand Jesus and how they come together and make sense. And he says, this is what Joel meant. When you get to see what was meant by the Holy Spirit, that's pretty exciting. And that's what the apostles were doing. They were teaching them how to read the word of God and understand it. Before long, they were actually going to be writing some more of the word of God so that we would be able to understand even more as especially Apostle Paul and the writer of Hebrews. They help us to understand even more the hermeneutics of the Old Testament. The third thing that you'll find is soteriology. Love that big word. Soter, which comes from the Greek word salvation. There was a big push about salvation in this particular message, in all of the messages. The doctrine of the atonement, the resurrection from the dead. You're going to find that when the apostles spoke, the big part of what they talked about was the resurrection from the dead. And in particular, Jesus. Do you know that there's going to be a, a life that comes next? It was very sad at the soup lunch this Thursday. Uh, I met a guy who told me about his mom. She was a devout Catholic, went to church, went to everything. He used some words on me that I've never even heard. You know, stuff that they, that they followed and all the practices they did. And then he said his mom lived to be a long life. But when she was towards her deathbed, she says, I don't think that there's anything more. Out of all that life of religion, she didn't have any focus on the afterlife. She didn't believe it. 
which made me wonder if she ever did meet Jesus. You see, when you talk about soteriology, about salvation, we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest we would boast. And when Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, John chapter 14, we can be encouraged to carry on. Acts chapter 24, the apostle Paul tells us when he stood before Festus in his own testimony, he said, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this very day. They preached about a salvation that goes on beyond this life. Are you ready to meet Jesus? If you were with the apostles, you would know about this great salvation which Christ purchased at the cross. The fourth thing they did was a spiritual formation. Fancy words, that just simply means a Christian life. Is a Christian life important these days? Are you free to do whatever you want to do? You see, when I look at those five characters running for office, what I want to be able to look at the fruit of them and see. Because the scripture says, by your fruit ye shall know them. And you know, but that scripture also applies to everybody in this room. By the fruit that you produce or the fruit that's hanging on your trees, people will know whether you're a disciple of Christ. So when you think about this, what kind of fruit is there? What kind of things do you demonstrate? What kind of things are happening? Spiritual formation is simply putting it like this, that you are a follower of Christ, that you mimic his honesty, you follow his passions, you delight in the things that he has done, and you're willing to sacrifice just like he was willing to sacrifice because greater love hath no man than that, and he did demonstrate it at the cross. And he said, if they did it to me, they'll persecute you too. Blessed are you. Read his words in Matthew 5. When men revile you, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who, comfort or who mourn. I mean, when you go through and you understand all of these things, uh, somebody that has spiritual formation is somebody that practices what Paul finally told Timothy to teach to the church people. He said, behave yourself in church. And then he said, be a great witness to those who are outside the church by your spiritual formation. There's a whole lot of instruction on it. If you read Paul's writings, especially to the churches at Corinth and at Rome, you're going to find that when troubles come up, it's not good enough to say, oh, well. It's important that they be confessed, they be repented of, and that people be restored. Now, the interesting thing there is, if I make the application here, how do we disciple today in 2016? To be a Christian today does not simply mean that you know the way, the truth, and the life. It doesn't mean that people are forgiven. I heard one of the, one of the candidates say that he's a Christian, but, he's, but he doesn't need forgiveness. When Jesus said Christians or people that follow him are going to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. I don't know if, if we can even apply that in our modern culture. Are we doing what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31? Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. I mean, you would think that's what disciples would do. Or even, do you recognize yourself as a part of the body of Christ? On the back of the bulletin, there's a few things that said, are you a part of the covenant community? Are you even afraid to be identified with us? So what does it mean? Quickly, it means that, you're gonna, that you forsake all. Luke chapter 14, those verses that I was talking about, uh, it said, it tells us that you deny yourself, you take up your cross, you follow him. You, you can, have you cost, has it cost you any treasure? Has it cost you any time? 
has it cost you any friends to be a disciple of Christ? Interestingly enough, when you walk, walk through Luke's gospel of Acts, or Luke's presentation of Acts, uh, the disciples were made. We find that people were making disciples in the first four chapters. We find later that disciples were found as they're going in the missionary journeys. They found disciples in some of these interesting places that they were at. Disciples were also engaged in a bunch of activity. They even talked back to the, to the apostles. I remember they influenced Paul not to even go to town because they said, no, 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 that's not what God's will is. The disciples were persecuted. Interestingly enough, this is how the gospel spread most effectively throughout the, that generation. They left Jerusalem, they left Judea and Samaria, and they went to the uttermost parts of the earth to find refuge. Even that, if that was Rome, if that was Spain, if that was India. The disciples rejoiced to be found worthy of following Christ. So, two questions I ask you. Do you look like a disciple in 2016? You've, ser- you've heard how the disciples were discipled. You've seen how the apostles were doing their apostling. I want to ask you, are you a follower of the master? Are you a follower of Jesus, of him crucified? Do you know him better? Are you into the word of God? Can you even finish some of the verses that I'm starting for you? Do you have a hunger for the scriptures and for the truth, for good teaching and for preaching? Secondly, do you have a heart for God? Does your heart weep for things that are troubled? Maybe your heart's moved with compassion for somebody that's hungry, but is it moved when you realize that somebody doesn't know Christ, that has a destiny in hell? And are your hands, are you obedient to the Great Commission, or are you just comfortable in saying, we'll pay somebody else to do it? You see, when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, that was only for the clergy that are ordained, right? Then that's the second point I ask. Are you passing this on? It's one thing to be discipled. It's another thing to disciple somebody else. If I gave you a distributed a piece of paper and say, put on that piece of paper, whom are you discipling? Do you have a name? Maybe I give, if I give you five minutes, you'll come up with somebody. Some of you are going to tell me, well, it wouldn't fit on one piece of paper. I'm trying to disciple, you know, 25 people. That would be awesome if that was a great problem. My fear is, is that most of us are content in just being discipled instead of discipling somebody else. In the days ahead, I want to encourage New Covenant Church to be known as disciple makers. And that would mean that you, as well as I, need to see that list grow and grow. And let's start with just one. Before you, before you go out, commit to asking God to teach one person that you'll disciple. Sometimes it's easier to work with little kids, right? You might fight over the three that were here today. Oh, I've got Rosie. I've got Chrissy. I've got the other one. I've got that one over here. I've got that. Maybe that's what you think is the easiest way. Maybe I'll teach him for Sunday school. I'll sign up for that. Are you discipling anybody? Are you passing on these truths that God has given to you to anybody? By your fruit, you'll know whether you're a disciple. Because John 15, verse 16, if you pop it up on the screen, John 15, verse 16. After we see Jesus' model, he says, I have ordained you, I have called you, I've called you out of this world that you should bear fruit. And it should be not just a little, but it should be much. Much. 
And that fruit ought to be visible over time. It should remain. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we think about discipleship, and oftentimes it only is convicting. Oh, Lord, I pray that instead it would be motivating. Even today, even in this service today, I had an individual come up and talk to me about a person who came to their home to do some business that was contracted and ended up giving the owner of the house a CD. And on that CD had music that was proclaiming the glory of Christ. How exciting it was that this individual was seeking to disciple, was trying to evangelize and was a blessing. Lord, I pray that we might even see how beautiful it can be as we're still seeking to disciple some of the, those who made professions of faith at the YWAM things at the schools. We'd love to see them followed up, that they would be not just hearers of the word once, but that they might be discipled to become a part of the body of Christ for eternity. Oh, Lord, I thank you that this whole process is not something that man devised. It's not some creation of some retreat that we went on. This is the way you set it up when you said, you'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Lord, I pray that when we stand before Jesus, and that may be very soon with watching society around us, the Lord is coming. But when we stand before Jesus, will there be much fruit Or will there be little fruit? Oh, Lord, I pray that you would cause each one of us to leave this place not guilty, but redeemed and energized to go and tell the good news to to the ends of the earth. And in Jesus' name, I close. conclude. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand to your feet and let's conclude.